Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. First things first, Happy New Year. And secondly, welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at the DreamWorks film Joseph, King of Dreams from the year 2000. This is actually a prequel to The Prince of Egypt, which I reviewed not too long ago. In terms of the layout for the episode, we shall start with a look at the background information, then a section on the historical accuracy, and finally I shall review the film and then rate it out of 10. But before then, we must uphold the ancient traditions of this podcast. It is time for my dramatic intro. Right. Because you were born to a barren mother and an elderly father, you were labelled a miracle child. As you grew up, this label turned out to be correct, as you begin to have dreams so vivid, so strange that they could not simply be imagination. However, your brothers become jealous. They plot against you. They throw you down a well and leave you in the darkness. When they come back, it is clear that they have more ill intentions. They sell you into slavery for twenty pieces of silver, and heartbroken, you are taken to the land of Egypt. Here, after many years of hardship, your ability to interpret dreams is recognised, which leads you to meeting the pharaoh himself. He is having a reoccurring dream, and you realise that its interpretation could save Egypt from a terrible seven-year famine. Because of this, you are no longer Joseph the Shepherd. You are no longer Joseph the Slave. You are Joseph, King of Dreams.
This film served as many firsts for Warner Brothers animations. Not only was it the first direct-to-video film they ever made, but it was also the first ever prequel film they made as well, as, well, as mentioned earlier, it was intended to be the prequel to The Prince of Egypt. Although this was always intended to be a direct-to-video film, a lot of effort was still put into it, and in fact, many of the same crew worked on both The Prince of Egypt and King of Dreams. In total, there were about 500 artists, and also quite a few ministers were consulted to make sure that the film was as accurate as possible to the biblical story. Although the cast for this film may not be as strong as The Prince of Egypt, hardly surprising considering that was a, an incredible cast, Joseph King of Dreams still boasts an impressive lineup, especially considering it was always intended to be direct-to-video. This is the last film of B.B. Osterwald, who played many of the smaller parts. Mark Hamill plays Judah, so we have, you know, good old-fashioned Luke Skywalker in here, the animated Joker, if you will. Richard Hurd plays Jacob. Richard McGonagall plays Pharaoh. And Ben Affleck plays Joseph. Okay, we have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. So here, I shall simply go over the film, saying what it gets right and wrong in terms of history. I will say, my main focus here is going to be on the ancient Egyptian sections, though just one quick non-Egyptian note before we jump in. They seem to put a lot of emphasis on sunflowers in Canaan in this film. So, for those who don't know, Canaan was an area in the southern Levant, roughly around the area we'd find Palestine today. Sunflowers originated in North America. They most certainly would not have been in Canaan. Moving on, during the film, at several points, we see forms of trade. The first of these is where Joseph is sold by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver. This, in fairness, is a pretty famous part of the biblical story. However, for me, a more interesting part of this film is where we see Joseph's Egyptian master, Potitha, buying a horse from a trader. During this scene, Potitha uses scales to weigh out the amount, and in all honesty, this is not entirely inaccurate for ancient Egypt. Egyptian trade was largely based on various weights and measurements. So, for instance, one of the most common types of weights we see is a deban. This was a weight of copper weighing about 91 grams. Another very common measurement would have been a car, which was a bag of grain about 79.88 litres. I love the way I say about and then I give an exact amount. To explain this a little bit more, let's say we have a lot of financial documents from a particular year in Egyptian history, and in these we consistently see that a car costs about two deban. We would then be able to pretty confidently say that two deban was the price for a car, or the price for a bag of grain. However, if the next year we see that this bag of grain now costs four deban on average, then we'd be able to determine that the price of grain has doubled. It is worth noting that this is a pretty simplified way of looking at it, and there were other measurements around as well, but in principle this is how the Egyptian economy seems to have worked. And in fact you can see the increase in Deben per a bag of grain in times of famine in the country. So for instance, at the end of the New Kingdom, during the reign of Ramesses IX, the price of grain increases 12-fold, Interestingly, as I've kind of said before on the podcast, 
This in part seems to coincide with the looting of the Valley of the Kings. So this is where a lot of the New Kingdom pharaohs were buried. In fact, most of them. Therefore, in part, the looting of the Valley of the Kings was because people were desperate. People were literally starving. I actually, in part, did my undergraduate dissertation on this. But when it comes to this film, the point is, Potiphar using scales here to buy a horse is actually really plausible. However, just a quick note as I seem to constantly be talking about this recently. Firstly, the horses in the film are far too big. But also, although there was some horse riding in ancient Egypt, it was pretty rare. Instead, providing the story of Joseph was supposed to happen in either the New Kingdom or late Second Intermediate Period, then horses would have been used with chariots. I'm not going to go into time periods too much here, though the most common claim I have seen is that Joseph lived during the first half of the Second Intermediate Period. This was a point where we had a native Egyptian 13th dynasty ruling in southern Egypt, a seemingly Canaanite 14th dynasty ruling in northern Egypt around the Delta, and maybe another foreign power coming in from the Levant known as the Hyksos, beginning to invade the country. It is a very complex and obscure time period, and it is very 50-50 as to whether horses and chariots would have arrived in Egypt by this point. During the film, we also see horses and chariots depicted on the walls of temples. In these scenes, they are often shown being used in war. When chariots were first introduced into ancient Egypt, likely around about this time, uh, it is very unlikely that they would have been sufficient enough for warfare. You know, the technology needed to get better first. Instead, they seem to have been used for kind of like hunting, inspections of estates and official appearances. Largely, they would have been used by the pharaoh and some other elite individuals. They were more of a status symbol, really. Instead, the scenes on these walls in the film seem to be more inspired by the New Kingdom when horses and chariots had been integrated into the Egyptian military. For this next point, it is worth noting that the biblical story of Joseph seems to take place in the Delta region of northern Egypt. In the Bible, this location is called the Land of Goshen, and it was almost certainly in the Eastern Delta. In fact, there is very little doubt about this at all, and it is one of the few facts that pretty much everyone on all sides of the religious spectrum agrees on. Very rare we can say that. One of the first things in the film that Joseph sees when he arrives in Egypt is a very large pyramid. Can you guess what there are absolutely none of in the Eastern Delta? Any ideas? Yeah, you've probably guessed it. There are no pyramids here at all. In fact, in the Delta as a whole, admittedly that we know of, there was only ever one pyramid. This was the Pyramid of Athribis. Although this pyramid is now lost, it seems to have been in the Southern Delta, near the ancient city of, well, Athribis. Today, the ruins of this city are located about 40 kilometres to the north of Cairo. Very little is actually known about this pyramid, and it has been discovered and lost a couple of times over the last few hundred years. However, it was first rediscovered during Napoleon's Egyptian expedition of 1798 to 1801. 
Although many of the facts surrounding this pyramid are currently unknown, what we do know about it is that unlike the more famous pyramids of Egypt, this one was firstly a lot smaller, and it was also made from mud brick rather than granite with a limestone casing. The type of pyramid that Joseph sees in the film most certainly is not made from mud brick. Moving on to the next point. In the house of Potiphar, there is a pet cat. Although the type of cat shown does not look anything like the type that the Egyptians would have had, it is worth noting that cats would have been in the country for a very long time by this point. The oldest cat remains in Egypt date to around 4000 BC. These remains were actually found in a human grave at the site of a suit and could have potentially been a pet. Though admittedly, the evidence for this is far from certain. The individual was also buried with a gazelle after all. More convincing evidence for the domestication of cats can be found in the tomb of an official named Baket. This tomb can be found at the site of Beni Hassan in Middle Egypt. It is worth noting that the cat itself was not found here, but it can be found depicted in the art on the walls of the tomb. In one scene, we see a female cat confronting a field rat. It is fair to say that it isn't really possible to know whether this cat was domesticated or merely tamed, but there is also little doubt that the cat was accepted into the household. Baquette was living in around about 1950 BC. Therefore, if we are placing Joseph in the first half of the second intermediate period, then he was living in around about 1700 to 1650 BC. So, between 200 and 250 years after Baquette. Put simply, it is perfectly possible that Potiphar would have had a pet cat. I always love facts like this just because very often when it comes to people living thousands of years ago, it can be hard to sort of empathise with them in so on some levels. But when you find out they've got a pet cat that they probably love, there's just something very nice and relatable about that. On a less accurate note, a little later in the film, we see Joseph painting hieroglyphs on the walls. He states in this film that he knows how to read and write ancient Egyptian, and yet he's painting the hieroglyphs in the wrong direction. I have said this a lot on this podcast, but you can read hieroglyphs from left to right, right to left or top to bottom, usually when they're in columns. But you always read into the faces of the animals and humans depicted, not into the back of their heads. I'm honestly amazed by how often films get this wrong, as you would think it's kind of a bit of a 50-50 shot really, but I swear that 90% of the time they get this wrong. Anyway, as I seem to frequently cover that, I'm leaving that discussion there. The final thing I would like to talk about in this film is the scene where Joseph goes to prison. I suppose the first question to ask here is did the ancient Egyptians have prisons? The answer is yes. Yes, they did. Further, they would have also absolutely had them at the time of Joseph. There are several ways we can know this, but the one I'm going to focus on can be seen in a papyrus known as Papyrus Westcar. Not only does this particular source date to the Second Intermediate Period, which, as mentioned earlier, is possibly when the story of Joseph is set, but due to its grammatical use, it also certainly had its origins in the Middle Kingdom the time period just before the Second Intermediate Period. Interestingly, the stories in this scroll 
are also set in the Old Kingdom and involve the likes of Khufu, the king who commissioned the Great Pyramid of Giza. In one of these stories, Jedi, a magician, claims he is able to tie on a severed head. So basically, what he means by this is if someone had had their head cut off, he would be able to reattach it. In this story, Khufu orders that prisoners, which in Egyptian translates as Henari, are bought from prison, which translates as Henaret, so that the magician can show him. Fortunately for these prisoners, um, Jedi refuses and instead performs the magic trick on a goose, a waterfowl, and then an ox. Just one little point that's slightly off topic, I suppose, but to be honest with you, I think it's very interesting. This is actually the first ever recorded magic trick in history. However, for our purposes, it does show that prison did exist at this time. Much of our understanding on prison in ancient Egypt unfortunately seems to come from later during the New Kingdom. This is especially true at the end of the New Kingdom when we have the mass tomb robberies in the Valley of the Kings. The ones I spoke of earlier when I was talking about the Egyptian economy and sort of the price of grain going up. Interestingly, from the papyri from this time period, so between the reigns of Ramesses IX and Ramesses XI, there is actually no evidence that people were sent to prison as an actual punishment. Instead, you were sent there whilst you awaited your trial, and whilst it was decided how to punish you. Though I will admit by the same token, prisons were almost certainly not nice places to be. In many of them, you would have been shackled, and I'd imagine in constant fear as you knew that something far worse awaited you in the future. Many of the prisons in ancient Egypt were actually attached to temples, and different temples had different ways of holding people. For instance, a few temples actually used the grain storage areas to hold prisoners, whilst at Medina Habu, which is the mortuary temple for Ramesses III, there was a row of rooms of various sizes coming off of a corridor. All of these rooms were very deep, narrow and vaulted. Therefore, although in the film Joseph seems to just be held in a strange kind of rock cave, technically there is nothing stopping a prison looking like this in ancient Egypt, as different places and temples would have held prisoners in different areas. Further, it is worth noting that in the film they do seem to be being held whilst they await a worse fate. So overall, when it comes to historical accuracy, this film is pretty mixed. On the downside, we have Joseph writing hieroglyphs in the wrong direction, sunflowers in Canaan, people riding horses, chariots being depicted in war, and pyramids in the delta of Egypt. However, on a more positive note, although the cat in Potiphar's house does not look Egyptian, domesticated cats would have likely been a thing at this point. The film also acknowledges that various weights and measurements were used in Egyptian trade, and finally, it does seem to imply that people went to prison whilst they awaited their punishment. Right, we have now arrived at the review section. So here I shall simply go over the film, saying what I liked and disliked, and then rate it out of 10. First things first, although the animation is not quite on the same level as The Prince of Egypt, it is still very good and charming. For me, the eyes in general in this film look really nice, and weirdly the lambs are just incredibly cute, like they're weirdly a standout. 
However, when it comes to the art style, far and away the best parts are the dream sequences. It is really clear that many of these were inspired by the work of Van Gogh, and you can tell that a lot of care and attention have gone into them. I would actually go one step further here. Although The Prince of Egypt overall has the better animations of the two films, the dream sequences here are easily the most striking of either film. Further, overall I liked the beginning of this film as it set up the characters well and it did give everyone legitimate reasons for their actions. Basically, you have Joseph's brothers working hard out in the fields. Meanwhile, Joseph is in the house learning, and as such, he seems to learn the concept of working smarter, not harder. So, for instance, whilst his brothers are taking bucket after bucket to the fields to water the plants, Joseph realises that making an irrigation system will overall take less time and effort. However, it is still noticeable that not only is he always in the house with his scrolls, but he does have a certain level of arrogance as a result. Partly because of this, and partly because of the special treatment he's getting, his brothers grow resentful of him. I understand why Joseph's mother and father treat him better than his brothers. It is because he is a miracle child born to a barren mother. However, I also understand why Joseph's brothers are resentful of him. I mean, let's face it, if you were being forced to work 10 hours a day in the fields whilst your younger brother got to lounge about in the house reading scrolls whilst your parents called him a miracle child, I'd imagine you'd be a little bit resentful too. I definitely know I would be. However, by the same token, the film still does a really good job of making you feel sorry for Joseph here, and there still is no doubt that his brothers making him fall down a well to begin with and then selling him into slavery for seconds, and then faking his death, breaking their parents' hearts at the same time, you know, may have been a little bit too far. I think it's fair to say that they're definitely in the role here. So, although we can see everyone's point of view, and we can understand sort of why they did what they did, overall it's still very clear who's in the right and who's in the wrong. When Joseph arrives in Egypt, as already indicated in the historical accuracy section, he is sold to Potiphar, the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. I really like the way the film quickly shows how he came into Potiphar's favour. First of all, Joseph shows himself to be a hard worker by cleaning the floor all by himself. Joseph then shows himself to be intelligent as he stops Potiphar from being swindled by a trader. Basically, there is a pair of scales and Joseph figures out that they are deliberately uneven in weight. It is after this that his education becomes apparent. However, for me, the best scene in the film was the prison scene. Here we have Joseph in prison, where he interprets the dreams of the inmates. This will eventually lead to Pharaoh hearing about him, and getting him to interpret one of his dreams as well thus saving Egypt from a seven-year famine in the process. This, of course, is ripped straight from the biblical story, but it also does serve as a logical plot device here. It keeps the story moving forward effectively. Further, during this prison scene, in my opinion at least, we also get the best song of the film, named You Know Better Than I. In all honesty, the music in this one is a pretty big step down from the Prince of Egypt in my opinion, 
But this song is at least really good. Even whilst this song is going on, the film still progresses in a really cool way. We see Joseph slowly planting a tree in the prison, and by the time he is eventually released, we see that the tree has grown big and strong. This is an effective way of showing how long he has been imprisoned for, and when combined with the song, it shows how, through all of the trials and tribulations that Joseph has gone through, much like this very tree, his faith in God has grown stronger. It's a really effective piece of symbolism. From this, at least the way I read it, it becomes clear that Joseph is not simply a miracle child because he was born to a barren mother and an elderly father. It is not just because he can interpret dreams. It is because he is a strong individual who even in hard times will put his faith in God's plan. Also, this prison scene does a really good job of making you feel sorry for Joseph. For instance, at one point, one of the slaves of Potiphar's house, Rachel, tries to lower food to him. However, she has to flee and the food falls to the ground and is consumed by rats. This part legitimately made me feel really bad for him. I wanted things to work out for this innocent man who had needlessly had such a hard life. When it comes to the slave Rachel, I feel that Joseph's relationship with her is done really well. If you haven't guessed, they end up falling in love. I would actually argue that the love story here is done much better than the one in The Prince of Egypt. This is largely because I felt that the wife of Moses, Zipporah, was really more of a minor side character in that film. Rachel is still somewhat of a side character, don't get me wrong, but she is given more personality. Further, because both she and Joseph were slaves who eventually broke out of that life and then fell in love, got married and started a family, it is hard not to feel just really happy for them. There are also some really nice little details that are easily missed in this film. For instance, when Joseph gains power in Egypt. If you watch carefully, you can see that one of the men in prison who Joseph interpreted the dream for is actually working for Joseph later. This is because he is the one who told Pharaoh about Joseph's gift. He is the one who got Joseph out of prison. This is by no means groundbreaking by any means, but it does show that attention went into the details. I also felt that the film did a good job at the end, where we see Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to get grain. It is clear that Joseph is wrestling with his own conscience and anger at this point. After all, they did sell him into slavery. It's clear that his relationship with Rachel is one of the things that saves him and helps him to do the right thing. She is actively making him into a better person. Now, of course, this film isn't without its flaws. Although I did like the beginning, personally, I was not a big fan of the opening song. I just felt that it was a bit cluttered and I didn't really get the rhythm. Opening songs in films like this are incredibly important for setting the tone and I really did feel that this one needed to be better. Next, although the character development was not necessarily bad, it was nowhere near as good as The Prince of Egypt. In that film, we see subtle changes over time and by the end of the film, well, let's take Moses for instance, he is basically a completely different person but every step of his journey has made sense. In this one, the characters didn't really seem to change that much. I'd say the most noticeable change can be seen in Joseph's brothers as they become more humble with age 
and because of their conscience over what they did to Joseph. However, as they are not around for much of the film, we don't really see this character development. They are just like that later on. This is not necessarily bad by any means, as ultimately these characters are not the main focus of the story. But I do also feel that Joseph should have changed more due to his experiences as well. In terms of the reviews, they are relatively good. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has no critical consensus, but it has an audience score of 63%, and on IMDb, it has 6.4 out of 10. So, we have some very consistent reviews here. Generally, it is seen as a good and charming film, especially for one that was always intended to be straight to video. However, it is also seen as a clear step down from The Prince of Egypt. I mean... In all honesty, I feel that this is pretty accurate. In a weird way though, I will also say that on this recent watch through, I actually got more pleasure out of watching this one than I did The Prince of Egypt. I will stress, I do agree that The Prince of Egypt is the better film, there is no comparison. But I've also seen The Prince of Egypt quite a few times, where Joseph King of Dreams is one I haven't watched since I was a child. I went into this film expecting it to be a bit rubbish, but nonetheless charming, and I was met by a film that was actually genuinely good. In fact, I do wholeheartedly believe that these reviews would be a lot better if it was not being compared to The Prince of Egypt. So, I would actually rate this film higher than these reviews do. This is a very solid film with a lot of charm. I am giving this film a 7.5 out of 10. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing, liking, leaving a comment, and join me next time where we shall be looking at the 2023 animated film, Mummies. From my knowledge, at this point at least, this is the latest one to come out in the cinemas. I hope you all have a fantastic week, and see you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.